Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, and uh, I bring you greetings from Third Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, this church is very much uh, familiar to Third uh, through a number of relationships. Uh, we had the privilege of hosting Oscar uh, just last week. So uh, certainly the friends that you made there and met uh, are thinking of FBC Hacienda today uh, and praying for you, too. So uh, from on behalf of the saints at Third Avenue, Merry Christmas. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love Christmas time. I love everything about it. Uh, the things that, you know, the culture completely shifts. Uh, it, it, the music changes. People put up decorations. Uh, they put these enormous trees in their house and lights around them. But when did all those things get mixed up with the story of Jesus? Where did the cultural niceties uh, that is maybe overcome or overtake what Christmas is really about? Who is Jesus really? Matthew is the perfect book to think about this question. Uh, the book of Matthew is very much considering the identity of Jesus. And so this text we're going to be looking at a portion of Jesus' life that establishes clearly his authority and his identity. Is he a teacher, perhaps a philosopher, a made-up religious figure, the Messiah? These are maybe common answers that you'd get if you asked someone on the street who Jesus was. Some have said a person like us or just a guy with a peaceful philosophy, a marketing genius because he got so many people to believe in himself. A symbol of forgiveness and love. Somebody extremely enlightened, morally. Or a guy with a positive message. Some of these ideas uh, come of, with a little bit of truth. Uh, many people know him from his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where he gave the golden rule, love others as you want to be loved. But what does Jesus do right after he preaches that most famous sermon? Well, that's the text that we're looking at today. Because you can't separate the person of Jesus from his teaching. And you can't understand Christianity or the message of Jesus or even the message of the Bible without understanding who he came, who he is, why he came, and by what authority he teaches. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 8. Uh, if if uh, you can or you want, you can, you can follow the passage in the bulletin I saw. Now, to give you a bit of context, Matthew's gospel is found at the very beginning of the New Testament. And because it's the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew is highlighting the change in history, salvation history. It was likely written to a Jewish audience, and we know that because of all the connections between Judaism and the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, when I was in high school and I first started really reading the Bible for myself, uh, I was reading a copy of the New American Standard Version that my dad had given me. And um, I have since become an ESV man, but uh, New American Standard is great. And one of the things that it did for me was it puts in all caps any quotations uh, of the Old Testament. And so reading through it quickly, I was just able to see in so many places the connections and the quotations. Jesus is the fulfillment of all scripture and brings heaven to earth through his teaching, his healing, most importantly, his sacrificial death on the cross. 
Now, if you are looking at your Bible and you see the large number eight uh, in Matthew, look just a couple of verses above it, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. It reads, and when Jesus finished these sayings, that is the Sermon of the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The people listening to Jesus recognized there was something unique about the way that Jesus was teaching them, something that made him stand out from other religious teachers of the day. Well, let's read our text now. And I know the bulletin says it starts at verse 5, but I'm going to go ahead and start at verse 1 to give the whole picture. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is paralyzed at home, at home, at home suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In the place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This text can be nicely divided into three main sections. Uh, first, we have uh, the faith of the centurion, verses 5 through 10. Then we have the kingdom of heaven in 11 through 13. Jesus teaches of that. And then in verses 14 through 17, the fulfillment of prophecy. And I think the main idea of this text, this whole section, is that Jesus is our highest authority, therefore we should trust him. Jesus is our highest authority, therefore we should trust him. And I have two points that I think communicate what's in this passage clearly. The first is Jesus' authority demonstrated, and the second is Jesus' authority declared demonstrated and declared. So point one, Jesus' authority demonstrated. The book of Matthew, one thing you can understand about it is that it goes back and forth between large discourses of his teaching and then many miracles. So right now, just between chapters 8 and 9, there is a total of nine miracles that Jesus performs. And in these particular ones, Jesus shows compassion on really unlikely figures. 
So first, in verses 1 through 4, you see that he heals a leper. Uh, We sang in one of our hymns today, he he cleanses the leper's spots, makes them white as snow. Uh, Leprosy is not something that is common today. Uh, but back then, it was really a scary and terrifying disease. You would get red and white spots, and if it got bad enough, you would maybe even lose body parts. Uh, but for Israel, they had specific laws in the Old Testament that they had to abide by. Uh, if you had leprosy, it meant that you were ceremonially unclean, and you had to actually get up and, and leave and not, not touch anyone, not see anyone, because anyone you touched, you would pass your uncleanness to. Uh, lepers even had whole communities that lived outside of the camp in Israel. And so people who who got leprosy, they had no hope of a cure ever, and they would have to say goodbye to their families and friends forever. Uh, They were to wear torn clothes, and when they would see someone who didn't have leprosy, they were to cover their upper lip and shout, unclean, unclean, to keep other people away, to warn them of, of their uncleanness. That makes uh, social distancing and masks not sound too bad, doesn't it? Uh, we've, we've had to deal with a little bit of that these, these past couple of years, but um, you know, just, just imagine having to separate from others forever and not having the hope of, of coming back. Completely isolated. Well, it's to someone like this uh, that Jesus heals. And what's so unique about it is... After he asks Jesus, Lord, if you will make me clean, Jesus does something unthinkable. He doesn't just say, all right, be cleansed, be healed, and then he sends him on his way. He reaches out and touches him, which means that normally that uncleanness should have gone to Jesus. But when he reaches out and and touches him, the opposite happens. Jesus' purity cleanses the man. And it's more than just Jesus as someone who has these supernatural powers. I think the to- at the time, being healed of leprosy would have specifically identified the authority and the power of God. Only God himself could forgive sins and could make someone clean. In, uh, in 2 Kings, it's, it's a bit of an obscure story, but there is, in 2 Kings 5, a story about one of Israel's kings. And he's rumored to be able to cure leprosy. And when the king of Syria hears this, he sends word asking if the king of Israel would would heal one of his commanding officers. And he responds by tearing his clothes and saying, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? So Jesus is teaching and healing with the power and authority of God. That's what these miracles are demonstrating. First, he exercises authority in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Then he cleanses the leper. And then he heals the centurion's servant. According to Matthew, we know that Jesus already had large crowds following him. Uh, It says that right in verse 1. Also, before the Sermon on the Mount, there's, there's a passage that says, They brought all to him who were sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. It's like saying, basically, from all the way up north of Israel and all the way down south, and then everything on the other side of the river. 
And of course, this, the Mediterranean Sea was over here. But what's interesting about this is Jesus comes proclaiming to be the Messiah of the Jews. After waiting for 500 years for Israel's next king, uh, they were expecting someone to come and conquer the Romans to deliver them. So you would expect him to have large crowds of Jews. But in our text, we see the faith of a Roman soldier. He's a Gentile. He shows more regard for Jesus than the Pharisees and the scribes, whose job it was to memorize the law. So the Pharisees and scribes, who should probably be on the front row of Jesus' teaching, uh, conversely, they're always trying to find him doing something wrong, and eventually they they plot to kill him. And yet, uh, we see the faith of a Gentile come and make a request to Jesus. Uh, Not only that, but, but he's a Roman soldier. And Rome and the Jews had a very interesting relationship. They were, they tolerated them. Uh, you know, they let them live and exercise their faith, but the Romans were in charge of wielding the sword. It was by them, you know, who, who eventually executed Jesus. So the Jews weren't exactly on great terms, but this person is a high-ranking military official. It's a good reminder for us, I think, that faith comes from all kinds of unlikely places, and all kinds of unlikely people. The Romans, they, they, toler, they, they didn't just tolerate the Jews, but they lived completely differently. They worshipped a plethora of gods. Uh, concubines were normal. They, they worshipped the body and pleasure. Uh, they worshipped their own empire as their god. So I can't imagine what this man's life would have been like. But it's probably someone that you wouldn't expect faith to come from. Spurgeon says, the best of pearls have been found in the darkest caves in the ocean. So consider those in your life who you think might be beyond professing faith in Christ. Pray for their souls. Perhaps you'd consider yourself someone who is unlikely to profess faith in God. Or maybe unfit to be called a child of God. I don't know where you got that idea, but it probably wasn't the Bible. God knows your sin more than you do, and yet he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the greater your sin, the deeper understanding you'll have of his grace when you recognize knowing your sin, he went to the cross. If you repent of your sin and trust in him, he offers you full pardon from those sins. And notice what a good boss this centurion must have been. He came all this way, sought out Jesus, and and frankly, that might have been something he could have been ridiculed for as a Roman official seeking a Jewish teacher or help. But he goes out of his way for a servant he has uh, who needs to be healed uh, and makes that request to Jesus. And I think there's a good application to be made that for those who are under uh, our authority, Christians should be especially kind. Uh, Those who believe in God and who have been shown mercy should be especially merciful to others. We should be marked by this kind of kindness, and uh, especially if you have any kind of authority. That's not really the the main point of this passage, but I think uh, it's exemplary in his faith. This man's faith is also a model of humility. He shows incredible humility in the way he presents himself to Jesus, Uh, recognizing the power of Jesus, 
Jesus already agrees. He, he says, yes, I'll come and heal him. And the Roman says, I'm not worthy to have you in my household. Just say the word, and I know he'll be healed. And that may have been because of uh, a, ceremony, a Jewish ceremonial law that said you weren't to have uh, uh, go under the homes of Gentiles. But whatever the case, he shows sensitivity uh, and certainly humility in the way that he requests Jesus' help and extreme confidence in the power of Jesus to heal his servant. Do you have that kind of faith? I, I, I have to say that I think when I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but be a little bit convicted that sometimes my prayers, they just act as kind of a lip service of things that I know I should be praying about without the actual <clears throat> confidence in knowing that God could answer those prayers instantly. God speaks and the world is created. He breathes and, a lot, and man comes to life. God can simply answer any prayer with a word. So we should pray humbly, but boldly, with all sincerity, when we make our requests known to God. And, and I should just pause and say, Oscar, I, brother, I think you do this really well uh, in the way that we pray for big things, people that we don't even know in other countries, churches across the states, uh, refugees. Uh, these are things that are not on the minds of most people. Uh, and they're, they're most likely things that we may not ever know if the Lord answers them, but we entrust them to God because uh, he is faithful and powerful to answer those prayers. Another application for us is not to use our occupation uh, as maybe an excuse to not have a godly character. Uh, I think this type of job, he would, this Roman soldier would have been exposed to all kinds of things, had pressure from all kinds of coworkers to live a certain way, and yet his character shines forth in his humility in approaching Jesus. In our lives and in our jobs, do you ever make excuses uh, that you know, maybe, maybe things are okay or your disciplines are okay because they're, they're just that much better than everyone else around you. But that shouldn't stop us. Uh, we, should, we should find reason to be holy and to stand out as salt of the earth. Now back to the centurion's servant. Look with me at verse 13. It says, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Did you notice that all of these healings in this chapter have been immediate? The centurion's servant would have been healed before the centurion even got back to his house. He would have greeted him, probably standing rejoicing. Later, Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law, and the fever leaves her. If you've ever had a fever, it's not, it's not the type of thing that just immediately disappears. Uh, it usually takes days, uh, lots of rest, and you don't, you don't just wake up and feel great. You usually gradually start feeling better. Uh, but that's not the case with any of Jesus' miracles. They're instantaneous. Uh, and, and just notice the wide range of people in this passage. Uh, we have first a leper 
Then we have a Roman centurion, uh, and then we have uh, a sick woman. Uh, all, all three of them were, were on, in the sense, on the outside of what the culture deemed as important. It, in, in our day, it would be like saying from the homeless to the lawyer to the student to the retired, all are able and fit to serve Jesus. Uh, all are, are worthy to be healed and to, be, and to have their tr- faith put into Jesus. Do you feel unfit to follow Jesus or to carry out a specific kind of task because of your sin or a lack of skill set? If Jesus can heal these people, why would you count yourself out? You've got no ideas what kind of amazing plans Jesus has for you or the things that God can accomplish in your life. Our text says that that evening they brought many people to him who were possessed by demons and he cast them out. He healed them all. Uh, Many means a lot. It's a generalization. Uh, But that Matthew is doing to basically just say an uncountable number of people Jesus is healing. And uh, it's not just that Jesus is healing random people as he's going along his way. Because Matthew is specifically a Jewish book, what Matthew is communicating as the author is that Jesus is Lord and has authority over all people, not just the Jews. And notice that Matthew differentiates between demon possession and sickness. Uh, You know, some people, they accuse the cultures of the Bible of basically being uneducated, uh, you know, (laughs) suspicious, making everything overly spiritual and unscientific. But this passage shows us that the people of the day, they had these categories. They knew the difference between a common fever and a skin disease like leprosy or demonic oppression. And Jesus is Lord over them all. In Luke's account of this event, the demons, when he, when he uh, brings them out, they come out confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because they are recognizing. But Jesus' pri- primary ministry as Oscar stated earlier, was not just to heal. He could have spent his entire ministry and life on earth just healing people. But he didn't do that. In fact, there were lots of times where he avoided crowds. There were lots of times where he went out of his way to to try to avoid people. But in much of his healing, he did so for the glory of God. One especially clear example of this is with his beloved Lazarus, who dies. He doesn't heal him because he misses him. Uh, But he specifically says, so that those watching would believe that God sent him and that he would see that, and that they would see that he had the power over death and they would glorify God. The lesson in the story is not that we are promised to be worry free or never get diseases, to live a happy life free from these things. Jesus never promises that, even though he does remove these afflictions from these people. Uh, There was once a great preacher who was diagnosed with cancer, and when his church hosted a prayer meeting for him, they asked him what to pray for. And uh, this was his response. Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. 
So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. Above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something slipped by. God is not only the one who is in charge, but God is also good in everything that he does. So even in the darkest moments of our lives, we can have confidence that God is glorified in them and in his people who trust him despite difficult situations. As Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The Apostle Paul is also an example of this. He was beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, and and many more hostile things. But he still proclaimed that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So no, we shouldn't expect everything to to go smoothly in this life. And uh, when you hear people teaching the Bible who who are telling you that these are uh, what God wants for you, I suggest you stop listening to them and look what Scripture actually teaches. Look down with me at verse 17. After Jesus forms these miracles, it says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew points to Isaiah 53, which we read earlier in the service, which is the, the promise of the suffering servant. It's the promise of the Jewish Messiah that would come, not just for the Jews, but would heal the iniquity of the world, who would be the sacrificial lamb of God. He would bear our iniquities, and carry our sorrows. So his primary mission is our greatest need. Not physical healing, but forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. By performing these miracles, Jesus is fulfilling this very important prophecy in which the suffering servant is stricken and afflicted. I want to read verse 5 again. The one that uh, is right after the verse that Matthew quotes, it said, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You know, when Matthew quotes uh, the, the, the portion of Isaiah 53, most of his audience, being Jewish, would have known exactly what he was talking about. And they would have been familiar with this verse coming right after it. Jesus healed the physical, yes, But most importantly, he represents himself as a sacrifice to God on your behalf so that we would experience a much deeper healing, a cleansing from sin. In the next chapter, Jesus is seen by the Pharisees uh, reclining at table. Basically, this means Jesus is hanging out. And uh, the people he's hanging out with are described as sinners and tax collectors and his disciples. And the Pharisees are perplexed by this. And uh, they probably think he should be hanging out with them because they're the religious ones. And the Pharisee asks the disciple, why does your teacher hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, 
In fact, turn over one page to chapter 9 to see his response. He says in verse 12, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says this to the Pharisees, who of course assume that they are righteous. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a burn uh, in, in irony, because they're clearly not. But them assuming they are, he still says he didn't come for, for the righteous, but those who are unrighteous, for sinners specifically. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that all people are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As Paul says, we have each turned our own way. But praise be to God. He didn't come for just those who are righteous, but for sinners. Like Jesus heals and commands those outside of the Jewish community, he came to earth to die and to rise as the perfect sacrifice, not for sons of the kingdom, but for all those who trust in his authority over sin and death. So in this way, Jesus' authority is demonstrated in his teaching, his cleansing, his healing, and even his suffering. Point two, Jesus' authority declared. To understand what Matthew is telling us, we need to look more closely at the faith of the centurion because his place in the story is, it has a remarkable effect on Jesus. This Gentile shows greater faith than anyone that Jesus had come across thus far. In fact, uh, the scripture says Jesus marvels. That only happens one other time in the entire book of Matthew. And it's another unlikely figure. It's the faith of the Canaanite woman. After Jesus says his mission is to declare salvation to the Jews first, she shows remarkable faith by saying, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus marvels and responds in the same way that he does here to the centurion by saying, Let it be done as you have desired. The faith of these two and Jesus' response to them is a declaration that Jesus his authority not just over Jews, but his authority extends to every nation. He is the king of kings, the prince of peace, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. So what is the reason Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith? Well, it's, it's not just that he came uh, to request that his servant be healed. It's not even that he is a Gentile who shows knowledge and humility towards Jesus. It's the reason why he knows Jesus can heal his servant. Read with me again the centurion's response in verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The Roman has an understanding of authority because he himself is an authoritative figure. He knows from his own experience in the military that he can make commands and the people underneath him must obey those commands. And to disobey those commands is to disobey the government and thereby disobey the emperor. 
this centurion sees that his authority is like an outstretched arm of the emperor's authority. And when he looks at Jesus, the remarkable thing about this is he recognizes the authority of Jesus uh, when he makes commands, things, things happen. They move, right? And the thing that Jesus has authority over is sickness and death. So this, this Gentile, this Roman centurion, sees Jesus uh, as, as an outstretched arm of the authority of God. And the things that just listen and obey and shudder are sickness and death and illness. Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith because of the quality of it, not not because of the quantity of it. Your faith is only as strong as the object it's in, and faith in the wrong object is worthless, no matter how much of it you might have. Uh, To have faith in something simply just means to put trust in it or to rely on it, much uh, like the way you all are relying on the chairs you're sitting in to support your weight. Uh, But, you know, if you... If you just had that same kind of trust in something else, like a mic stand or or perhaps that music stand, it wouldn't be so good. You may have uh, enormous faith in things that you do every day. For me, it's uh, you know just driving around. I just assume that the brake is going to work uh, every time, <laughs> and. Um, you know, there are even times I've had a couple of scares in my life. Uh, nothing disastrous, but there's been a couple of times where I thought my foot was over the brake and it was actually over the gas pedal. And so I stomped down firmly on it and instead, you know, started uh, accelerating forward instead of slowing down. Uh, the point is this. Uh, if your faith is not in the right thing, it's, it's not going to be of any use. Uh, I, another example, maybe, is uh, Google Maps. I use that a lot. Um, I put too much trust in it sometimes, and other times I put not enough trust. Uh, you know, there are times where I stubbornly think I know the way that I'm supposed to go, and Google Maps doesn't know what it's talking about. And then I make the turn, and I end up sitting in traffic. Uh, and then there are other times where <laughs> I, I know the way to go, and Google Maps is telling me another way. And so I think Google Maps... It must know something that I don't know. Maybe there's a road closed, and then you end up on all these side roads, and and it's a mess. Well, Google Maps is is pretty good. Uh, It does know a lot. Satellite technology can do a lot. But Google Maps is not omniscient. We worship a God who is omniscient. And Jesus not only knows all things, but he has authority over all things. There is nothing in this life more fitting for you to believe in, to put your trust in, and to stake your life in. If you trust in Jesus, you will never be lost. You might still find yourself in traffic, though. Uh, This Roman's faith in Jesus and his understanding of Jesus' authority is a declaration in itself, and he entrusts himself to that authority of God. Uh, The next declaration is by Jesus himself. Uh, in his response to the centurion's faith. Look what he says in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the kingdom of heaven, while sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. 
and that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' response here is pretty shocking. Uh, Despite Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, he is ministering primarily to people who would reject him. But Jesus extends salvation to all people. And his plan has always been to bless the nations. We know that from Genesis 3.12 and his promise to Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Through Abraham, he created a nation and established a kingly line that Jesus would come from. And uh, Matthew, like, like I said, written to a Jewish audience, highlights this, this fact that salvation comes to the nations by including uh, three Gentiles in the genealogy in chapter 1. Uh, by the way, two of them are women. One is Rahab the prostitute, and the other is, uh, is Ruth the Moabite. Later in the book, Jesus tells two different parables uh, that have this global theme of the nations, and he specifically mentions uh, some sons of the kingdom and the kingdom of God. One is uh, in chapter 21, the parable of the wicked tenants. He says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. And then in chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast, uh, they send out invitations and they're ignored. And so in order to fill the banquet hall, they're commanded to go out and invite everyone on the roads and the streets to gather everyone they find so that the wedding hall is filled. And he's referring to Jews who had the law in the Old Testament but rejected their Savior. This is that turning point in salvation history that I mentioned at the beginning where the gospel is is made known to all people. The kingdom of God will not be made up of only ethnic Israelites, but all people who accept his grace and submit to his authority. And the kingdom will be taken away from Israel in the sense that those who had his law uh, and had his commandments were blessed before other nations to have those things, have rejected God's Savior, Jesus. And we know that no one's entitled to the kingdom of God. The Jews made the mistake of thinking that they would be because of their ethnicity, because of their heritage. And we can do the same thing sometimes, not specifically because of those reasons, but maybe just because we think our character is good, or we come from a good family, or we simply haven't done anything we think is outrageous, or there's just so many that are going to be first in line before us, if you will. But, but that's not true faith. Instead, we should call on Jesus with humility and submission, and he will bestow mercy to us. Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent and to trust in him. Will you choose the kingdom of heaven or outer darkness? That, that phrase, outer darkness, is used a number of times throughout the book to refer to hell. It's the place where rebellious sinners are sent and punished for their sins against God. It's described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, despite what the world tries to tell you, the world tries to, uh, to put a, a nice cushion underneath its definitions and convince you that it's not so bad, uh, that it's maybe even good. But friends, they're wrong. Hell is a place absent of all blessing and every grace, every bit of comfort that we take for granted. It's, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. No sin will go unpunished. 
In contrast, the kingdom of heaven is described as a marriage supper of the Lamb, where there will be no more pain and no more tears except for tears of joy. Prophet Isaiah told of this in chapter 25 when he said, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich full marrow, and of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. There's going to be a day for Christians when every sorrow and discomfort goes away. There will be no shame or insecurity or or grief or anger or resentment and no death. All will be made well and the enemy of death will be swallowed up forever. One common objection I get to the gospel message in general and to Christianity is, why is Christianity so exclusive? And by that they're referring to the message that Jesus, of course, is the only way to salvation. And you can, you can tell that there's a little bit of idolatry underneath that objection. What are the things that you want to have that you don't want to give up for Jesus? But when I read the Bible, what I want to point out is I can't help but recognize the opposite. Friends, look at the inclusivity of the gospel. To the outcasts, to the unclean, To the sinners without distinction, Jesus welcomes you into the kingdom if you submit to the lordship of Jesus in your life. This is why the Apostle Paul declares, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the declaration that is made about the Messiah, that he is Jesus, Lord over all things, giver of salvation. So who is Jesus? He's God, the Son incarnate. He's the Messiah, heir to the throne of David, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Will you recognize the authority Jesus teaches? Will you be an honored guest of the kingdom of heaven? Or will you be thrown to outer darkness? Friends, don't let that happen. If you haven't decided what you think about Jesus, and you want to wait until you have everything figured out, don't. We don't have all the answers in life. But Jesus gives a clear calling and a clear reward for those who turn from their sin and trust in him. Run to Jesus today. He has his arms wide open, ready to embrace you. His authority is demonstrated today in his miracles declared by his teaching over sickness and the forgiveness of sins in his identity as the suffering servant. There's no higher authority than the Son of God who was made flesh and and dwelled among us, who sympathizes with our weakness, who carried our sins to the cross so that we would not perish in outer darkness, but instead we would dine with him forever in the kingdom of heaven. There's no greater authority to stand on. No better rock to put our trust in. All other ground is sinking sand. 
Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your son Jesus and the miracles that he worked on his time here on earth. Lord, we confess that we sometimes lack the faith and the humility displayed in the centurion. Lord, we thank you for sending your son as a ransom for sinners. Lord, you didn't have to do that. Father, we pray that we would each live our lives uh, in a way that uh, submits to your authority, that makes it obvious to others around us that you are our supreme authority in life. Uh, Lord, we pray that, that we would continue to grow as servants of your kingdom, and we look forward to the day that we can dine with you forever in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we pray you would make us uh, more like you each day. In Jesus' name. Mm-hmm.